Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Did you, uh, did you eat too much? I read, uh, I read on Thanksgiving morning, I was just reading the news and this and that, and I read, uh, I can't remember where now, but it said the average American on Thanksgiving Day consumes 4,600 calories. Yeah, that's some serious chowing down, I'm saying. That's, that's like two days food in one day. And then we wonder why we feel bad. Ah. <sighs> Amazing, huh? I'm sure you have various Thanksgiving traditions at your house, the way you do things, or holiday sorts of traditions. One of the things that, uh, that we like to do, we don't do it as often as we would like, but we like to uh, build jigsaw puzzles. So this Thanksgiving, we, we uh, set up a table in the, in the family room, and we had a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, going on the table, and it was a, a bit of a challenge at times with the little ones running around who like to take pieces out, and uh, while others are trying to put pieces in, but uh, it's just a fun thing to assemble a jigsaw puzzle, and a bit of a, can be a bit of a family project. Now, I think about jigsaw puzzles in relation to this uh, little mini-series that we're doing here on the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, because... Uh, Establishing the doctrine of the teaching of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is much like building a jigsaw puzzle. There's not one single verse we can go to. There's not one silver bullet that settles the, uh, the case or the argument for all times and for all people. It actually is much closer to the assembly of a jigsaw puzzle in that there's lots of little pieces. And sometimes the, the pieces may not look all that significant, but, but they snap into place. And eventually, as you, as you uh, see it come together, you realize that, wow, this is a complete picture. And so that's what we're uh, trying to do here in presenting uh, various reasons why we believe that the scripture teaches the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. That is, that before that coming seven years of tribulation is poured out on this planet, that God will take the church to be in glory with the Savior. Christ himself will return to take the church to be to him. And, uh, you know, just thinking about putting pieces together and how important that is, I, I'm reminded about uh, the Gulf War. Gulf War. Do you remember that? Uh, some of you remember it for sure. Others of you have read about it in your history books, even though it occurred in 1991. The uh, Gulf War, at the time, there was that massive military buildup there after Saddam Hussein had, uh, had invaded Kuwait. And all on the news, there were regularly people coming on and saying, is this the precursor to Armageddon? Is this going to be it? It was, I believe, the fifth largest army in the world was the Iraqi army at that time. There was a massive buildup of, of uh, U.S. and other uh, nations, soldiers there in the Saudi Arabian desert. And so people were saying, is this Armageddon? And I remember telling my children at the time that, no, this is not Armageddon. This is not Armageddon. And we can know that this is not Armageddon. And the reason we can know that this is not Armageddon is because, according to the scriptures, Armageddon occurs later in the tribulation period. It is a, a, a series of campaigns called Armageddon. It occurs in the second three and a half years of the tribulation period, according to the book of Revelation. 
And I know we're not in the tribulation period because, according to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, the event that sets off the tribulation is the signing of the peace treaty between Israel and the Antichrist. And that hasn't happened. And so without that signing of that covenant, according to Daniel, the tribulation cannot begin. If the tribulation has not begun, then thus it cannot be that this coming war in the Middle East can be Armageddon. So again, a series of pieces of a puzzle that are snapped in place. And you can say, okay, it could be terrible for sure, but it's not Armageddon. Well, with that as a bit of an introduction here, let's... Take a look at the 10 reasons why we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Let's put some more pieces in the puzzle. Now, I want to begin just quickly to review what we looked at last week when we were together. And that will give us a running start as we add to the puzzle. So, 10 reasons why we believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Reason number one was it best preserves the doctrine of imminence. It best preserves the doctrine of imminence. And we said imminence or, uh, or something being imminent is an event that is close at hand. It is an event that is close at hand in the sense that it could overtake you at any moment. At any moment. Other things may occur before that event, but nothing must necessarily occur before that event in order for it to be an imminent event. We also said that imminence is not time-bound. It's not the same thing as saying something's going to happen shortly. Because if you say something's going to happen shortly, then you've implied a time period. It's no longer an imminent event. So the return of Christ for his church, according to the uniform testimony of the New Testament, is an imminent event. It's an event that it could occur at any moment. At any moment. Now, the fact that it's been 1,900 years is irrelevant it still remains an imminent event. It was something taught in the New Testament. It was something believed by the apostles. For example, in James chapter 5, and uh, I'll go ahead and, and I'll let you go ahead and flip there. James chapter 5. And then verse 7. James writes, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and latter rains. You too be patient and strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. James writes this around A.D. 50. When he writes this, and so James writes this early epistle and said, the judge is right at the door. It could be at any moment. You get to the book of Revelation. So go to Revelation chapter 22. And verse 7. And Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, it's been 50 years almost since the, the judge is right at the door, and, and the, the message still is, it could be at any moment. It could be at any moment. And so, the passage of time doesn't affect the concept of imminency. Okay, so, it, 
The reason we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is because that understanding best preserves the New Testament teaching about the imminent return of Christ. Secondly, secondly, the pre-tribulational rapture provides comfort to the church. And for that, we looked last time at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're just reviewing here. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. This is a preeminent text on the rapture of the church. And as we said, the dominant theme here is comfort. Notice verse 18. Therefore, conclusion from what's just been taught, therefore comfort one another with these words. What words? The words of verse 17, that they are going to be snatched away to be with the Lord. That's what is supposed to comfort them. So here's the point. If the church is going to go through seven years of terrible tribulation, then those that have died and missed out on it are in good position, better position than those who are alive. And so the only way the passage makes sense to say that the the return of Christ for his church is to bring comfort to the church who is grieving those who have passed away, not because they didn't think there was going to be a resurrection, but because they thought that they were going to miss the return of Christ. And he's saying, no, you won't miss it. He will come and he will get you. And then we will join them and we will meet them in the air. And by extension, we will miss this awful time of tribulation. Because if we're going to go through it, those that have died are better off than those that are alive. And yet the people are concerned about those that have died. You understand? So this passage makes sense with a pre-tribulational rapture. Third, Paul's statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, that we, that as Christians, are not destined for wrath. We are not destined for wrath. That is not uh, our Uh, ultimate uh, future is not wrath. Why? Because Christ has taken the wrath of God for us. But you have to work with me on this one. The wrath of God is his passionate, settled, passionate anger against sin and sinners who are in open rebellion against him. Ultimately, the wrath of God will be poured forth to its fullest extent in a place called the lake of fire. All who refuse the gracious offer of salvation in Christ alone will find themselves cast into the lake of fire, and there they will know the terrible wrath of God. But temporarily, during the seven years of tribulation, also known as the day of the Lord, God will pour forth his wrath on the earth. It is a down payment. It is an illustration of the coming and greater wrath of the lake of fire. So we are not destined for wrath. We're not destined for for the future and ultimate wrath of the lake of fire. We are not destined for the temporal and illustrative wrath of the seven-year tribulation period. Why? Christ has drunk the wrath of God for us. He has drunk the wrath of God for us. It doesn't mean we won't suffer persecution. It doesn't mean life can't grow very, very difficult. It doesn't mean that many people couldn't be martyred. That's all true. But it means we are not destined for the wrath of God. And the tribulation is the wrath of God. That takes me to number four. Number four. We believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture because of distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. 
because of the distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. A comparison of the events surrounding the second coming of Christ, as explained by Jesus himself in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, and then a comparison of what Paul says about the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, reveals some similarities, to be sure, but there are significant differences. And we looked at some of those differences last time. I'm not going to do that again. But here's the point. In order for them to be the same event, in order for the return of Christ and the rapture of the church to occur at the same time, to be the same event, there can be no differences. Similarities don't make it the same event. Differences make it a different event. Do you understand? So, because there are differences, real differences, it cannot be the same event. The rapture of the church cannot be the same event as the second coming of Christ. They're two different events. Now, that does not prove a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. I quickly will admit that. It does not prove that. It disproves a post-tribulational rapture of the church. It takes that idea and pushes it off the table and says, no, it can't be that because the differences between the events. It leaves open the possibility of the pre-tribulational rapture, thus, as a piece of a puzzle that snaps in, I see it as evidence of the pre-tribulational rapture. It makes the most sense of the data. You got it? Beautiful. That was a whole long sermon in 10 minutes. Now we go forward. Okay? So now we need to move forward. Number five. Puzzle piece number five. We believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church because of the purpose of the tribulation. Because of the purpose of the tribulation. Okay, so now you've got to work with me on this. According to Matthew, let's just do it this way. According to uh, Matthew chapter 23, so I'll go ahead and take it here. Matthew 23. Verse 39. Remember, this whole series uh, springs out of our exposition of Matthew's gospel. Remember that? Like that was way back then? Yeah, Matthew 24, 25. Anyway, after the first of the year, we'll go back to Matthew. So, Matthew 23, verse 39. Jesus has had his final confrontation with the religious leadership of the nation. Right? He has lamented over the generation. He has charged them with guilt, complicity, and the opposition of God and his prophets, uh, beginning uh, from Abel and on. And then he makes this statement in verse 39. He says, For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The nation will not see the Messiah until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is until they repent. Until they do what they have refused to do, which is to fall on their knees and receive Jesus as their Messiah. And the state of, na- uh, the, the, state of the nation of Israel, the, the, the fate of the Jewish people at this time, remains the same. They are in stubborn opposition to Christ. They refuse the Messiah. They want nothing to do with Jesus. Now, God, of course, saves individuals out of 
uh, the Jewish people and into the church, the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile in this age, but the nation itself remains in hardened opposition. But we are told by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, so go ahead, Romans 11, In verse 25, Paul is addressing the issue of Jewish unbelief. And he is warning the Gentiles in the church there at Rome, don't be haughty here, don't think highly of yourself because, because you're in and, the, and Israel's out. He says, verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is until God is done dealing with the Gentile nations. And so, look at this statement. And so, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now the reference to the gifts and the calling of God is a reference back to the Abrahamic covenant. The gift of the land to the people of Abraham and the calling of the, of the, ultimately of the new covenant to the nation of Israel, right? Jeremiah 31, I will make a new covenant with the, with the people, with the nation of Israel and, and, uh, excuse me, the, the, um, the people of Israel and Jacob, right? Not like the covenant I made with their old, the old covenant there, but the new covenant. That is irrevocable. God cannot change his mind. God will not change his mind. But God tells us here that there's a time, there's a place when the nation of Israel will be saved. They will be brought into the new covenant. It's not now. It's not now. So, Jesus says, you won't see me again until you're ready to, to receive me as your king. Paul says that someday it's, they're going to receive him. That, that they're, going to, they're going to be saved. They're going to call out to him. The prophet Zechariah. So, Zechariah chapter 12. So, I'll turn you there. speaks of this moment. Zechariah 12, Antichrist and, and, and the armies of the, of the world are, are seeking to destroy the nation of Israel. They have gathered there. This is Armageddon. And in Christ returns... To, to defeat them and to rescue his people. And at that time, he says, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. There is a time coming when they will acknowledge the sin of the refusal of Messiah, and they will call out to him and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then all Israel will be saved. So, why do I bring all that up? Well, because it plays directly into the purpose of the tribulation. 
The purpose of the tribulation is primarily Jewish. It is primarily Jewish by design. It is Jewish by design. In other words, its, it's purpose, and it has multiple purposes to be sure, but its first and fundamental purpose is to shatter the pride of the people of God, those ancient people, so that they will humble their heart and receive their king. They need to be crushed. They need to be crushed. And so God will do this. He will do this. And he will do it through the tribulation. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to notice with me the Jewish terminology that absolutely uh, surrounds and, and, is, and is infused in the discussion of the tribulation. It's Jewish. It's all about Israel. So, turn to the left to Jeremiah, chapter 30. Beginning in verse 4. The prophet writes, Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a man can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. It is a description, a prophetic description of the coming tribulation period of time that is so intense, so terrible, that it, that it undoes people. Uh, and it's like a man is going to, about to, to face the, the terror of, of labor and childbirth. They're undone. But notice it says that it's a time of Jacob's distress. It is specifically for Jacob. It is for Israel. Turn to the right to a Daniel chapter 29. Uh, if you could find a Daniel chapter 29. Instead, what I'd rather have you do is go to Daniel chapter 9. If you can find a Daniel chapter 29, you have a non-Bible. I just got the colon in the wrong place. That's all I did. Anyway, Daniel chapter 9 is where I want you. And, and I want you to look at verse 24. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. This is, this is the prophecy given to Daniel in response for Daniel's prayer. You got to remember the scene now. They have been in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years or thereabouts. Daniel has been reading in the prophet Jeremiah where it has been predicted the captivity will last for 70 years. And so Daniel's doing the math and he's thinking, man, we got to be really close to the 70 years here. And so he prays and asks God to restore, keep your word and restore your nation, restore your people. And so in response to his prayer, and it's a, a prayer confession of their sin and so forth, the angel Gabriel comes to them and brings him an answer. Verse 24, 70 weeks, and we, when we looked at this passage months ago, it's weeks of years. 70 weeks, 490 years, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, 
to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. What I want you to see here is that this is for Daniel's people. Your people, Daniel. This is not for the world. This is for your people. Who were Daniel's people? The Jewish people. For the Jewish people. This is an answer, Daniel, to your prayer on behalf of your people. This is the answer that applies to your people. Now, other peoples of the world will certainly be impacted by it, but it is for you. It is for your people. Take a look over to chapter 12 and verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book of life, will be rescued. So again, it is the prophecy of the tribulation, and it is specific to Daniel's people. It is specific to the nation of Israel. Beyond that, notice in uh, back to chapter 9, verse 27, that the prophecy uh, involves the temple and and the holy place. Verse 27, he that is Antichrist will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, for seven years, but in the middle of the seven years of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So there is a, there is a, a, um, a prophecy here about there'll be a, res- a, a restoring of sacrifice and offering and temple worship. And in the middle of that, the temple itself will become defiled. Matthew records for us in Matthew chapter 24... And verse 15, Jesus referencing the same event. So Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. I told you, I think the let the reader understand is let the reader understand the prophecy in Daniel. Okay, so I think Jesus actually said that. I don't think that's an insert by an editor. Jesus said it. Notice the terminology, though. It's the abomination of desolation in the holy place, in the temple. So it's about the temple. Tribulation involves the temple. Back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. We're kind of flipping back and forth here. And notice the covenant with the beast. 27, he will make a firm covenant. The Antichrist, that is, will make a firm covenant with the nation of Israel. So it will be Israel who will make the covenant with the Antichrist that will kick off the tribulation. The interruption of the Levitical sacrifices here in the same verse, right? Stop the sacrifice and the grain offerings. So there will be ongoing sacrifice. Now, a question that obviously comes to mind is, how does that all happen? There's no temple in Jerusalem right now. And the answer is, yeah, you're right. And I'm not sure how that all works, but there will be. There will be. Okay? I think part of it is that when the peace treaty is signed, part of the terms of the peace treaty is that Israel will get to rebuild their temple. They will get to rebuild their temple. That will be one of the reasons they will sign the treaty. 
They'll get to rebuild their temple and to begin the Levitical sacrifices all over again. So the tribulation involves Levitical sacrifices in a Jewish temple. The uh, Antichrist himself, when he, when he desolates, he commits the abomination that desolates, desolates the temple, he will set up an image of himself in the temple. Notice what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing... says in verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. Okay, what will not come? The day of the Lord. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the son, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Revelation 13, 15 says that there's actually an image of him set up there and all the world is called to come and to worship and to bow down before the image and to receive the mark of the beast, 666. Okay? So again, it revolves around the Antichrist setting up the image of himself in the temple. By the way, in verse 3, I think when Paul's saying there that the man of lawlessness has not been revealed, I believe the revealing he's talking about is the signing of the peace covenant that Daniel 9.27 says will be signed. Okay? And I'll throw the other thing out for you, and you can chew on it if you like, but it says unless the apostasy comes first, I believe the apostasy spoken of there is the falling away of Israel from their God in the sense they, they stop looking to, to, to God to protect them and they look to Antichrist to protect them. But we could talk about that some other time. Uh, false messiahs. The tribulation period is characterized by false messiahs. Back to Matthew 24. Verse 23. Then if, he, then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Listen. The church is never in danger of following a false messiah. We know who the messiah is. We are persuaded to the depth of our being who the Messiah is. So we, we are susceptible to all kinds of error, to be sure. All kinds of deception, to be sure. But one deception we are not susceptible to is for someone to rise up and say, I am the Messiah. And we would say, no, you're not. No, you're not. But Israel is susceptible to false messiahs. She has been susceptible to false messiahs. She will be susceptible to false messiahs, and she will fall for the ultimate false messiah, who is the Antichrist, the anti-messiah, the, the one who sets himself up in opposition to God and uh, says that he will be her deliverer. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do, deliver Israel. And it is the false Messiah who says, I will deliver you, sign the treaty. Okay? So, the tribulation period is, is just loaded with false messiahs. That's not a problem for the church. It's a serious problem for Israel. Chapter 24, verse 20. 
Notice there, he's, he's talking about when you see the abomination of desolation set up, when you see the Antichrist, break the peace treaty, set up the statue in the, in the Holy of Holies, command the world to come and to worship him. He says, run. Jesus says, run. And what I want you to notice here is verse 20, he says, but pray that when you're running, it's not in the winter or on the Sabbath. It's not on the Sabbath. What do we care about whether it was on the Sabbath? Right? We don't keep the Sabbath. The church doesn't keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ, but the Sabbath is still seriously important to Israel. So when he's saying there that that pray that when you have to flee, it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Because why? Well, because you will be torn as to what to do. Do I run? Or, you know, I'm only supposed to go so far on the Sabbath. It's a Sabbath day's journey. So so you're going to be in this tension of do I I run and flee from my life? Or do I remain faithful to to God as I understand it and, and, you know, don't, don't go on the Sabbath? That's a Jewish problem. It's a Jewish problem. 2416. Run. And those who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. He's talking about the tribulation. He's talking about to run, to get out, to run away. And he's saying, that, you know, if you're in Judea, run to where? Run to the mountains. And we talked about this. I run south and into the wilderness. I'm convinced it's Petra, but be that as it may. Again, it's to the Jews. The Jews are to run during the tribulation. There's no instruction here to the church. It's all to the nation of Israel. Zechariah chapter 12, back there again. Notice that just prior to the return of Christ to rescue his people, it is the city of Jerusalem that is under siege. Chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord also will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above uh, Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David and and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. The tribulation concerns the Jerusalem. It concerns the temple. It concerns the Jewish people. No talk about the church. Okay? No talk about the church. Finally, Revelation chapter 7. The seals have been broken. Tribulation is underway. What I want you to see in chapter 7, beginning in verse 4, is the, is the calling and sealing of the 144,000. These are the, the evangelists, the witnesses who are going to go out throughout the earth during the tribulation period and preach the true Messiah. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of what? Israel, And then he goes down. The tribe of Judah, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Naphtali, the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Simeon, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Issachar, the tribe of Zebulun, the tribe of Joseph, the tribe of Benjamin. Those are Jewish tribes. These are Jewish evangelists, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes. They are the witnesses. They are the evangelists that are protected by God. They have the seal of God on their heads Notice it, verse 3, 
They have the seal, the bondservant of God on their foreheads. The idea here is that they are protected by God from Antichrist. And they fulfill the responsibility that Israel had always supposed to have fulfilled, which is to have been a kingdom of priests. You remember at Sinai, according to uh, uh, Exodus chapter 19, I believe it's verse 6, that there they are called a kingdom of priests. That is, they are to represent God to the Gentile nations. They never did it. They messed it up. Now, during this terrible, terrible time, that's exactly what will happen. They will go out and they will preach the coming kingdom to the world. Okay? So, kind of pulling all of that together, I do it all just so you see, there is a very, very, very strong Jewish strain that runs through the tribulation period. It is designed to bring Israel to her knees so she will call out and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sixth, the sixth reason. The sixth reason we believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture is because it allows for children during the millennium. Now, you've got to think with me on this one, and time is short. Okay? But it allows for children during the millennium. Okay, so now think with me. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, let's go ahead and at least you know, turn there. I'm not going to keep reading these passages, but at least if it's in front of your eyes, maybe it'll help you. Christ returns, right? He comes in the air. There's, the, there's the, the, uh, the shout, the trumpet of God, right? And the dead in Christ will rise first, it says. And then we who are alive and remain will meet with them in the clouds, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. At that moment in time... All of the church, that is all the believers in Jesus Christ, all who are part of the body of Christ, will be uh, given glorified bodies. The dead will be resurrected and given a new body. We who are alive and remain will be translated. That is, we will receive the glorified body which will enable us to live in the presence of a holy God. You get that? So what that means is at that moment in time, Right? Uh, the church is all glorified bodies. First Thessalonians or First Corinthians chapter 15, it says, in a moment in the twinkling of, eye, of an eye, right, we shall all be changed. Now, we will be given bodies suitable to live in, in heaven, which is, is, is basically the presence of God. And those bodies are bodies that are not suitable to procreation. I said, think with me, run with me on this. Uh, Matthew chapter 22. Who lives in the presence of God right now? Who's always lived in the presence of God? It's the holy angels. Chapter 22 of Matthew's gospel, verse 30. Jesus is rebuking the Sadducees. He says, you don't understand uh, the scriptures nor the power of God. Verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are what? Like the angels in heaven. So, what does that mean? That means that when the church is raptured, they are unable from that point forward to have any more babies. No more children. Okay? Sexual relations end at the moment of glorification. All right? Hang on to that. Chapter 25 here in Matthew, describing the return of Christ, the second coming 
Verses 31 to the end of the chapter, verse 46, is the sheep and goat judgment. Remember, we looked at that. At the sheep and goat judgment, the Gentiles are gathered together before Christ. And he separates them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. The sheep are the believing Gentiles who have demonstrated their belief by their compassion to, and I made my case to you, their compassion to the Jewish people who are being persecuted in the tribulation. They are the sheep. They are welcomed into Messiah's kingdom. Here's the point. They are never resurrected. They are brought into Messiah's kingdom in their earthly bodies. Bodies just like yours and mine. They are believing people. The unbelieving Gentiles are slaughtered. They're the goats. Okay, hang on to that thought. Israel, when Christ returns, of which only about a third, according to Zechariah 13, survived the tribulation, are also gathered, according to Ezekiel chapter 20, 33 to 38, and they pass under the shepherd's rod. And he separates out the unbelieving, the wicked, and they are slaughtered. And the believing of Israel are invited into Messiah's kingdom. They are in human bodies just like yours and mine. So the millennial kingdom begins with some of its residents being in fleshly human bodies like ours, but they are believing in Messiah. You got all that? And that is absolutely essential. Because... There are babies born in the millennium. So if everybody, if, if, the, if the rapture occurred at the end of the tribulation, then everybody who believed would be immediately given their glorified body and there would be no, no believing people in human body to enter into the millennium. Now go to Zechariah 65, or not Zechariah, Isaiah 65. Zechariah doesn't have 65 verses, but Isaiah does. Isaiah 65, all right, I'm going to work this through, and then I'm going to take a read of the audience and see how many furrowed brows I see, and then I'll take another whack at it if I'm, if you're still confused. Okay, we're putting in the, we're putting in the sky pieces to the puzzle. You know what that's like, right? They're all blue, okay? So you've got to work at it. All right, Isaiah 65 Beginning in verse 17, it's a long section to read here. Well, we're going to go for it anyway. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Now you go, wait a minute, the new heavens and the new earth, I thought that follows the millennium. It does. What you need to remember is the prophetic shortening. Remember, we talked about this, not the kind of shortening you bake a cake with. But that there's, there's peaks of prophecy, right? And there can be valleys separating them. But from the prophet's point of view, he sees one peak and it's superimposed on another. So that's what's going on here. He's, when he talks about the new heaven and the new earth, he is looking through the millennium and into the eternal state. But he is going to speak about what happens in the millennium. Behold, I created new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days 
or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. And they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not enter... They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the dust will be the serpent's food, and they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Listen, only people in mortal bodies have children. Only people in mortal bodies have children. Zechariah chapter 8, I won't turn you there for the sake of time, you can just mark it down, but Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 through 23, is a picture of Gentile nations coming and and basically it says, seizing the the hem of the garment of the Jews and saying, take me to the Messiah, show me your Messiah. One other point. Revelation 20, and then I can tie a bow around this, I hope. Revelation 20. When Christ returns, Satan is bound. He is bound and cast into the abyss for a thousand years. That's what the first part of Revelation chapter 20 tells us. Verse 7, Revelation 20. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then follows the great white throne judgment. The resurrection of the wicked dead. So what is the point of all of this? It is simply that. This. In order for there to be a rebellion at the end of the thousand years, there have to be people living who do not believe. Does that make sense? They are in rebellion against Messiah. If everyone enters the millennium in a glorified body, unable to sin which would be the case if the rapture occurred at the end of the tribulation, then everybody, when they would pass through the judgment, would enter in, in a glorified body, then there would be nobody to have children. And without having children, there is no way to explain the production of a, of a human population that after a thousand years is going to rebel against Jesus. The only way it makes sense, the only way it makes sense is that when Jesus takes away the church at the beginning of the tribulation, and then there are people who come to faith during the tribulation, and they enter the millennium in the physical bodies like yours and mine, and they have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on. And it is these descendants of these believing parents who reject Messiah and rebel. It only makes sense for the pre-tribulation rapture. And it also brings an incredibly sobering reality to the human condition. People have lived or people will live for a thousand years in a world that knows no hostility, that it knows no 
disease, that it knows no poverty, that it knows no oppression, that it knows only righteousness. The prophets say as the righteousness will prevail the way the waters cover the sea. It will be righteousness throughout the earth. The king himself will sit on his throne in Jerusalem. And yet, people will turn their back on him. And they will say, we will not have this man to rule over us. That is the the sobering, frightening reality, beloved, of human sin. That's the reality of human sin. It also is the frightening reality that as believing parents... We are well capable of producing unbelieving children and grandchildren. What does that mean? Well, God alone controls salvation to be sure. But it means we should never, ever, ever assume the salvation of our children. We should never, ever, ever believe just because we brought them to church their whole life. Just because we've read the Bible in our homes, just because we've sung Christian music, just because we've gone to church, just because we've been here every time the doors are open, that somehow they will believe. We need to evangelize our children. We need to pray for the salvation of our children. And beloved, as a congregation, we need to evangelize and pray for each other's children. We had a parent dedication here this morning. We said, yes, we will support That's a serious and sobering thing to say. We are involved and need to be involved and are to some degree responsible for the Christian upbringing of the children of this congregation. May God give us grace. May God give us grace to do what ought to be done. Father, we pray because we realize that we are powerless. And we call out to you because you are not. Your arm is not short, too short to save. Your heart is compassionate, gracious. And so we beseech you, we, we pray and ask that you would save that you would extend your hand of mercy to save those among us, old and young alike. Our Father, we know that we cannot save, that salvation is of the Lord. So we call out. We also realize, our Father, that we have responsibilities to make disciples, to preach the gospel. To raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We recognize our Father that that we as a community of believers, a a family of God, a, a community of faith, that we bear corporate responsibilities. I pray you would help us to heed those responsibilities and do our work well. Father, may the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church spur us on not to waste time. We pray with the people of God from of old, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus.
Amen and amen.